This is the Youth Worker Collective podcast from Young People's Ministries. You don't have to be in ministry alone with resources, coaching, games, and more at umcyoungpeople.com. Kara is uh, the executive director of the Fuller Youth Institute and uh, faculty at Fuller Theological Seminary, some place that I spent a little bit of time as well. Um, she's also named by Christianity Today as one of 50 women you should know. So I'm glad that now we know one of those 50 women. That's an important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, she serves as the youth and family strategist for Orange. I know a lot of you um, probably are familiar with Orange. Some of you I know uh, use that um, and speaks regularly at parenting leadership conferences. She has authored and co-authored a bunch of things. Um, but her most recent book, I think, uh, I'm not sure if you are aware of it. Um, I know that a lot of us are aware of the the initial piece, The Growing Young. Uh, but she has a, a, a new book that she's co-authored called Growing With, Every Parent's Guide to Helping Teenagers and Young Adults Thrive in Their fan- Faith, Family, and Future. And, you know, it equips parents to take steps towards their teenagers and young adults uh, in a mutual journey of intentional growth that trusts God uh, to transform them all. And I'm going to go ahead. It's, it's fantastic. I, I was not aware that that had come out, and I ordered it immediately. <laughs> um, Kara, you've been involved in the youth ministry world for a while now. Right. And um, as we are uh, getting on, and I know some people are um, really familiar with you and your work. um, Yeah, I am curious, just um, kind of looking at your longevity lens, right? All of this uh, time in youth ministry, there's a lot of new things right now for us. Uh, a lot of uh, things that are requiring us to uh, be innovative and take risks. But what are the things that you've seen that really, no matter what time, have sort of been the through line, right? The the things that are important with or without a pandemic that have um, have been an important part of youth ministry when DC Talk was around and when DC Talk was not around, right? And some of you are too young to really even track with what the is DC this DC talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we would actually see Michael W. Smith sing "Friends Are Friends Forever." <laughs> <laughs> <That's not> <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, Russell and the Swain and the end of the camp. Hey, I, quote, <laughs> I quoted that song in my twelfth uh, grade baccalaureate speech as a high school senior and I felt like that was such a a big statement to make about my faith to mention God in those lyrics so that that song has a special place in my background you know um Jeremy that's a fantastic question and the number one answer that immediately popped to my mind was relationships that that has been the you know the clarion call of uh scripture of Jesus's own modeling of the incarnation um, human flesh, building relationships. And certainly, you know, I, I, I continue to see that be a, a key thread that's weaving its way through youth ministry. I, I actually just finished a call with FYI moments before coming here, our FYI team. And we were musing that we're actually 
we're actually seeing youth leaders wonderfully talk even more in this pandemic season about empowering volunteers to build relationships. I feel like I'm, I'm hearing youth leaders um, of all church sizes, of all experience levels, talking more about how do we uh, recruit and help volunteers connect with young people when they, in most places, can't meet face-to-face. Um, I'm also seeing in this pandemic, some churches build relationships with parents and try to help parents have more generative discipleship, uh, building relationships with their kids. And I think that's tending to skew a little bit more toward more experienced leaders. Um, so across the board, I would say relationships with volunteers is a, is a big theme that we at FYI are seeing in this pandemic. Yeah. And so how, what are some things that you guys are seeing that are working, uh, especially for those relationships with volunteers? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Sam, you really make a great point in the chat that this is a, this is a tough time to build relationships. I, I mean, it's thinking really small. It's thinking really one-on-one, um, not massive Zoom, but, you know, for each, or even like small group Zoom, some are going well, some are not going so well. But, you know, how can a volunteer connect individually with the young people in his or her um, kind of shepherding circle over the course of a week. And that might include small group. Um, and I think it also is even beyond that. It's texts, it's dropping off that young person's favorite candy. I, you know, I'll tell you, small group leaders have done that at our church. They've made an effort to learn kids' favorite candy and then either mailed it or dropped it off. And that has meant so much to, to my teenagers. I think the other thing that I'm particularly excited about in this pandemic is the way that um, we're seeing young people use their gifts in new ways. I mean, friends, like my whole time in youth ministry, but especially this last 10 or or 15 years, I've said so many times, I wish young people were less busy, less busy, less busy. And, And I think we now have less busy teenagers than I've ever seen in the I do the math for 33 years that I've been doing youth ministry. And so teenagers time is, is just this asset. If we can figure out as we talk about in growing young, how do we hand the keys to young people, the keys of power and influence and authority. Um, Again, I'll, I'll speak very close to home. Literally our church this summer, like many, most churches had to cancel camp or, you know, make it camp at home, camp in a box, et cetera. And we know what camp and summer summer short-term missions mean for a young person's spiritual journey. I mean, it's it's like the jumpstart of the summer that that helps kick off the year in in such a powerful way. And so to lose that, you know, I think losing camps and short-term missions has been one of the biggest losses of this pandemic. Um, But our church pivoted and did camp in a box. and, And I'll tell you, our high school pastor reached out to my daughter um, and asked her to do social media for the camp. And so she spent, you know, maybe an extra half hour, hour a day uh, posting multiple things on Insta. Um, she got the login information for the high school ministry. Um, and she, she thought that was such a big deal. Like, I mean, she, Dave and I, my husband and I could tell, like, she thought she was kind of hot stuff to have that login information. Um, and, and now she's actually worked out a volunteer arrangement where she's going to spend a couple hours a week during the school year working on social media for the church. My daughter is actually really good at social media. She wants to head into marketing. 
Um, I ask her questions all the time and she offers all sorts of correctives on what I'm doing wrong. And I'm so old on social media. I use too many words, um, and so, <laughs> which is all probably true. So, so I just love how our high school pastor is reaching out to Krista and other kids, you know, with the time they have, and, and this is something volunteers can certainly do, with whatever skills God's given them, whatever passions God's given them, how can they spend a little bit more time this fall um, in kingdom work related to that? Yeah. So Roy was asking, um, particularly about computer Zoom overload, like uh, what are some yeah. ways that we can help our families deal with that? Um, I, you know, I, I wrestle with that myself. And my, you know, my 14 year old, my ninth grader said to me yesterday, mom, I was on Zoom seven hours today uh, between school and <sighs> between um, an after school activity she's in debate. And she's like, I'm so tired of Zoom. Um, and luckily, her life group isn't on Wednesday night, so it wasn't an issue. But um, it's really tough. I mean, I, I think applying what I just said earlier is um, we as adults, I'm not sure we have the best ideas on how to do Zoom well, but we spend a lot of time with experts, and those are our students. So I think this is an opportunity for every youth pastor to uh, you know, whether it's involving two or three or four students every week in planning, debriefing, et cetera, or even more broadly inviting students to reimagine themselves how, how Zoom can be used. Um, I'm all for it. I think, you know, small groups and those kinds of things, shorter, shorter, shorter. You know, I'm preaching for a church this weekend virtually, and they're doing 12-minute sermons. And this is a church that, let me just tell you, they were doing 30, 40 before the pandemic. And that's not just for young people. Like, this is a, mm -hmm. you know, full church sermon. And I think, bravo. Um, so I think we yeah. have to think shorter, more interactive groups. And it's a great way to involve young people in helping shape that. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of thinking about the, the interactions you were talking about between volunteers and students. Um, what are... What are some of the dangers that we need to be looking out for? Um, because in some ways, when we are kind of moving fast and breaking things, we can be unaware of some of the risks that are involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where, where do we need to be paying attention to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I hope every church has a, a very thorough process um, for, uh, for, uh, recruitment that includes a, a vetting of any adult who's going to be spending time with kids. Um, and that includes on Zoom. Zoom is just as dangerous or close to just as dangerous as in person. And so, you know, I, our church, we have a, a police record, we have fingerprints. I mean, we're doing that level of, um, of thoroughness of making sure that we protect our young people. So I would say um, that, you know, that should happen at recruitment as well as, you know, potentially kind of on an annual or semi-annual basis. Um, mm -hmm. so, so I think we need to be uh, diligent about protecting our young people um, and create a process that we feel good about and we feel like uh, would weed out anybody who um, could be a problem. So. Right. So kind of moving into a different direction, Kay has a, a I think, a really um, – prescient question about um, millennials and yeah. uh, and our younger adults. Uh, are, are we going to ever see them back? Yeah. Uh, 
somebody said this, and I think it's true, that pan the pandemic is revealing underlying conditions in our churches. Yeah. So I think any... Um, any cracks or struggles that we were already experiencing in how we relate to any generation, it's becoming all the more obvious when it comes to the pandemic. And while God's working in powerful ways through a lot of churches with young people, um, you know, it is statistically a gener the generation that's the least represented when it comes to um, church attendance and involvement. So, um, you know, we're stretching this rubber band. I'm not sure where the rubber band is going to stretch back to. Um, I, I think that we're going to, you know, the optimist in me, and I am an optimist, I think hopefully churches are going to innovate, experiment, realize what goes well online and in smaller, smaller, smaller. Um, and, and I think that can be brought back into the DNA of our churches long term. Um, I find Jesus really compelling and I'm an optimist. So, you know, Kay, I would say, um, you say the building and that's, that's a tougher question for me to answer. So will we see millennials and younger back in the building for worship ever? Um, some, but you know, if we eliminate the building from that question and make it, will we see millennials and younger back in worship? Um, I, I sure think so as churches are empathetic to what they're going through building relationships, um, not judging, but journeying with young people. It drives me crazy when I see Christians and churches being just as judgmental toward young people um, as, as it, you know, outside of the church. I was reading a book by Grant Skeldon this last weekend, and, and he said, basically, this is my paraphrase, that, um, you know, it, you can't criticize a young person unless you're discipling a young person. Like you do not have the right to criticize a young person unless you're building a long-term generative relationship with a young person. And I, you know, underlined that and filed it away. And I think this is the third time I've quoted him um, since Saturday about that. So hey, we're hearing this uh, from a lot of parents and, and men uh, has asked a question. They're doing parenting meetings on Zoom. Right. And a lot of them are struggling with discipling their children. And uh, so what are some ways that we can encourage them? What, what are some things that we can do to, to sort of help support them in that? Yeah. Um, I would say give them simple, simple tools or conversation starters that they can use. I mean, I'll, I'll be totally honest, uh, as a parent myself, uh, with three kids, two who are home, our, our 12th grader and ninth grader uh, girls are home, but our uh, college sophomore went back to Texas this past weekend. But we've had three teenagers with us for five months and we do family church every Sunday. And I'll tell you, I have tried everything. Like, you know, I have pulled out every youth ministry idea I could think of from, you know, things that are totally art-based, to a uh, different curriculum, to NUMA videos. I mean, I'm, I'm going on YouTube and looking at NUMA videos. We've used those a couple times. Uh, skit guys videos, because my kids like the skit guys from coming with me to use specialties events. Um, and, and what we've landed on that's actually been the best for us as a family. Um, and, you know, I used to spend probably an hour each week preparing what our family church was going to be and talking about it with my husband. And we've now landed on the alpha youth videos and they're free on YouTube, 13 of them, 20 to 25 minutes. 
um, with three or four different questions embedded in the video. So it makes it super natural to pause and then turn and discuss. Um, and, you know, we've gone through, I think, seven of the 13 videos now. And, um, and you know, and I would try listening to our worship service and, and other people's worship services. I mean, I, I really wanted this to be meaningful for our kids. And actually, Alpha, which, which requires zero preparation for me, other than making sure I can play the video on YouTube on our TV, um, that's the only preparation. And it, it, it's been our best discussions. Um, and, and the least eye-rolling from our teenagers. And so um, it, it's a super simple tool. So I would say let's make things really simple, plug and play, um, two or three questions for parents. So, and you know, the other thing I would say is helping parents capitalize on whatever rhythms work for them. And for some families, that is going to be, you know, Sunday, uh, late morning for our kids when they wake up. That's when we do family church. For other families, it's going to be, you know, over a dinner. And that's just fine. Like, we don't have to sequester Sunday, our worship to Sunday mornings. Let families figure out the rhythms that work for them um, to have those more meaningful, focused discussions. Well, wow, that's a lot. Thank you for that. Um, well, I love how you all have been so active on chat. So I'm going to ask you to continue to you know, put those fingers on those keyboards and respond to this question um, that I'm going to go ahead and put in chat. If you knew your life was ended, ending and you had time for one last prayer, what would you pray? Go ahead and put whatever comes first to your mind, like you know, not what answer you think you should give, but really what, what would you pray about or for? Forgive me, yeah. For others to know they are loved by God, for the comfort and care of my family, your kingdom come, Lord have mercy, yes, Lisa, take care of my family, let my family, for my children, care for my family, uh, make it painless, yeah, Denise, thanks for being real, also care for my family. Uh, you know, I, I think two-thirds of us probably say family, um, comfort for my family, and, and yeah, that would definitely be um, at the top of my list. I, I wrote down in my own notes, I would pray for my kids' faith. Um, that probably is what I pray for the most now today, is that my kids would hunger for God. Um, yeah, they would hunger for God. So uh, let me ask this question. Let's turn and think about what did Jesus pray about and for when he knew his life was coming to an end, when he knows struggles are ahead, the crucifixion is coming. What's interesting is he doesn't pray for strength for himself. Um, and he knows that struggles are ahead for his disciples. One of my colleagues, who's a New Testament scholar, so I, I'm going to accept what Dr. Tommy Gibbons at Fuller Seminary says at face value, but I wanted to research it a little bit more. Tommy once said this to me over coffee, and I wrote it down, so I'm going to quote him. Nobody in the Gospels is a reliable believer after the crucifixion, except the women of Jesus' family who took care of Jesus. Um, so, you know, Jesus knows that many are going to forsake him. He doesn't pray for perseverance for his followers, or as we might say today, grit, um, thanks to the great research that's been done on the, on the importance of grit. But instead, we see what Jesus prayed in John 17, 20 to 23, which I put in the chat here. Um, Jesus is arguably one of his last prayers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let's let that sink in a moment. When Jesus is faced with a last opportunity to talk to his Abba, he talks to them about our unity as his eventual followers. And I want to draw our attention to two aspects of that passage. First of all, the quality of the unity. Um, let's look at verses 20 and 21, where he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He wants us to have the same kind of unity with each other that he has with Father, that he has with the Holy Spirit where the Trinity, they're so in sync with each other, different functions and manifestations, but united in mission and purpose and really essence. So first of all, there's the quality of the unity, and then there's the results of the unity toward the end of that section in John 17. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And of course, this echoes in John 17, a, a teaching previously in John, John 13, 31 through 35, where Jesus talks about, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So I want to do a bit of math with you for a moment. Um, and I want you to think, pandemic, non-pandemic, whatever season we're in, how much, what kind of change can your church and your ministry accomplish in young people that you have relationship with on your own? What kind of change, what kind of leverage can you see happen in young people? Now I'm going to throw out a percent just for the purposes of illustration. Let's say that any of us working on our own, my own church in Pasadena, Lake Avenue church working on its own can see a 10% shift in the lives of young people, 10% more young people coming to know Jesus, et cetera. Let's just, Pick a number, 10%. If we want to see a 10x change, a 10 times change, a multiplicative change, I don't think the question is, what can my church experience on its own? I think the question is, what can we in the church more broadly unite on together? Any of us working on our own, we're around 10%. But any of us working with others, that's where we can get closer to 10x. And I would say this, when I look at how COVID has changed institutions, there's a lot of institutions that are recognizing this these days, who are uniting. Hospitals are coming together, medical teams sharing equipment and personnel, city to city across our country. Schools are coming together. I know where I live in Pasadena, uh, my understanding is that the, 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 the head of schools across Pasadena, they have two to three phone calls a week talking about how their schools are doing and what they can learn from each other. Hotels are coming together. They're staying in communication about vacancies and, and people who might have need and how we can house them. So many institutions are coming together. And I would say that during COVID, we in the church we're often trying to do our own thing. Um, we're often focused on those we immediately know and not thinking so much about the broader church. And that might look like other friends in UMC or dare to say um, people outside of your wonderful denomination. 
Chris Wilterdink knows this well, that this is something that we at FYI are spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, we were approached about a year and a half ago uh, with this data. Somebody had done a, the Pine Tops Foundation had done some wonderful research on research basically and concluded that about a million young people a year are drifting from the church. That's across denominations. A million young people a year are drifting from the church. And um, we had a gathering at Fuller about a year and a half ago, and then subsequent conversations since then that, that Chris and others in UMC have rolled up their sleeves and been active and influential contributors in, dreaming about this. What could happen if we work together when it comes to the discipleship of young people? Um, I think in the pandemic, a lot of us are afraid that this is a lost year when it comes to discipleship or a lost however many months when it comes to discipleship. But what if we flip that on its head and say, no, 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 this is the season where we can step in and, and, and experience and offer a unity that we haven't yet experienced and move from that 10% more to that 10X. So I want to offer you um, some things to think about as a leader in your individual church or ministry steps that you can take to think more about the kind of unity that Jesus prayed about in John 17. And I have um, four points that I'd love for you to think about, and I will go ahead and put them in the chat. As we move from me to we, that's another way to look at this. Instead of thinking only about ourselves, how about if we think about us more collectively? Um, first is what would it look like for you to build a friendship Actual friendship, actual like sharing life, praying for each other, knowing what's going on in each other's lives with a pastor different than you. That could be a pastor of a different race, different denomination, different church size, different stand on same-sex questions, which I know are quite alive and vibrant in UMC and really every denomination and church these days. What if we intentionally made an effort to build a relationship with someone who is different than us so that we can grow and what it looks like to have the kind of unity that Jesus envisioned in John 17. Um, Jeremy wonderfully mentioned growing young and the research that we did on 250 churches that aren't aging or shrinking, but are actually engaging young people. And one of the common qualities we saw some, and I'd love to see it more, is a lot of these churches, as they were trying to strategically steward their resources, is they would support other ministries before starting their own. They were super committed to the kind of justice work that I know is in the DNA of the UMC. They were prioritizing that. But when a church member would come to them and say, hey, I really think we should be doing more for those who are homeless in our city. Um, these wise churches were saying, well, before our church starts something, let's look at what's already happening in our city. Let's look at what you know, city resources as well as philanthropies in general are doing. And then let's look at what other churches are doing and see if there's a way, instead of starting our own, we could actually partner with other ministries. Um, so what if we thought more about that in our churches and even in our youth ministry, if we're going to start something, do some kind of experiment in the pandemic, maybe uh, we think about who is somebody that we could do it with which actually ties very well to the next thing that I'm going to say. Point number three, if we're going to move from me to we, 
is to do one new thing with another church with a clear goal. And there's a lot that's important in that sentence. Uh, I'll just start with clear goal. I see a lot of church networking over the 30 years um, that I've been in youth ministry that has not, I would say, had a strategic enough um, outcome in mind. And I'm, I'm a, I love Stephen Covey where he says, begin with the end in mind. And so what might we be able to do? I think this is a wonderful time to experiment. Um, people are more open to different ideas. And quite honestly, things not working. Like I, I feel like the tolerance for things not working is higher for us in youth ministry. So that makes it a great time to experiment and you know, fail if, if something doesn't work out like we hope. So is there something we could do? Maybe it's related to outreach in our community. Maybe it's related to trying to welcome teenagers who are not yet part of a church. Um, what's something we could do with another church and a, a clear goal? Um, and where getting something meaningfully done is part of the glue that unites us. Um, there's a church here in LA that we follow closely in FYI. And they started with a vision for um, offering immigration-related resources to immigrants. So legal, legal resources as well as kind of holistic wraparound support to immigrants. But they were wise. They didn't, they didn't start on their own. They started talking to other churches. Um, and now this, this one church, which is a 200-person church, this one church that's a 200-person church is now partnering with 10 other churches uh, on immigration resources, as well as expanding into homelessness prevention resources. And the city where they live, which is near Pasadena, where they're doing ministry, is so impressed with their results that they're now giving this 200-person church money to distribute to these 10 other churches um, related to immigration and homelessness. Because this church said, you know what, we want to help immigrants, and we're not going to do it on our own. We're going to make sure that we connect with other churches. And I think only one of those other 10 churches is in their denomination. So the other nine are outside of their denomination. And then I will give a fourth way that we can move from me to we, and that is to publicly champion the good work of another church. How do we feel when another church has a youth ministry that's growing and ours is not? How do we feel about that youth pastor? Um, what would it look like for us to be generous in the way that we talk about that church? Um, you know, let's get real here. If we, if we have families from our church and our ministry who are checking out another church, we have a way of making subtle comments about that other church to try to discourage families from checking out. Well, yeah, they offer a good show, but they really don't do much community. What if we committed and said, we're not going to be like that. We're going to think we instead of me, and we're going to have John 17 unity. I don't think any of us are going to say at the end of COVID or at the end of whatever season in your current ministry position you have, I don't think any of us are going to say, boy, I really wish I hadn't collaborated so much. I really wish I hadn't worked together with other people. I don't think any of us are going to say that. I think we're going to say, gosh, I wish I had worked even more in collaboration, in partnership with others, instead of focusing just on our own church. If this kind of unity was one of Jesus's last prayers, then maybe it should be one of our first. Maybe it should be one of our top priorities. And I think what's interesting about this idea of, of unity with others is that it has a unique generative potential to increase all the other things that we hope to contribute to see God do. 
It's like this battery that supercharges the other things that we, we want to see in our communities. Maybe even mostly true when it comes to outreach, neighborhood, justice ministries, etc. So I offer that as some thinking, um, hopefully not to burden you with, oh my gosh, Kara's asking me to do one more thing and I'm already overwhelmed with the pandemic. But hopefully this uh, vision that you're not alone. If you feel alone, you're not alone. There are others on this webinar in your denomination and across denominations in your city um, that you can link up with as fellow followers of Christ to experience that 10x potential that comes when we're unified. Thanks. Thank you, Kara. That, that is a, a very needed, I think, encouragement for us. I have a question for you, though, um, as we kind of debrief uh, your, yeah. um, your call to us. Um, so I, I've had, uh, I have a pastor right now and I've had other pastors who love collaboration. Uh, I've also had pastors in my past who are not yeah. so excited about working with other churches. They see it much more as a competition and things like that. Um, what do we do to, um, lay the groundwork with our supervisors, our yep. senior pastors, uh, when we are looking at this kind of work? Fantastic question. And I will say that applies to any kind of change we want to bring about, not just collaboration, but anything where we'd like to see, um, I'll just be honest, our supervisor be even more supportive uh, than they are being right now. Um, I would, this is what we've seen churches do successfully, uh, Jeremy, is first of all, they do experiments on the margins. Um, you know, the way, if your senior pastor isn't going to be super supportive, then I'm not sure that I want you next month to, you know, make an announcement, spread it on social media, that collaboration is going to be the heart of everything we do from here on out. Um, it's more, how do, we, how do we flirt and take some baby steps in the margins um, and get some smaller wins that we can then trumpet and build on and see more momentum happen. And again, you know, I think this is a good, in most ministry contexts, a wise path forward. They only, I mean, I would say in like 90, 95%. The, the five to 10% where there might be a different, better path forward is if your church is used to like big visionary change um, and have a senior leader who's all about big visionary change. But that's the minority. Um, so that's the first thing I would say is small experiments on the margins generate some wins that generate some momentum. The other thing I would say is, I'm always trying to figure this out, to be honest, is to speak the love language of your supervisor. And I don't mean, you know, the Chapman's love language about touch and gifts and, <laughs> and all that. But, you know, like whatever's That important. could be awkward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Whatever's, whatever's important to your supervisor um, think about how what you are dreaming about and feel called to aligns what's important with them. Um, and I think about that just with my two supervisors at Fuller. Like, what are they passionate about? What, what rings their bell? And how do I um, honestly and authentically show connections between this and what's important to them? So, you know, if, uh, if your senior pastor loves scripture, then how do we make a case from scripture? If your senior pastor loves numerical growth, how do you make a case through numerical growth? If your senior pastor loves, you know, kind of the example of other churches, whether it's neighboring churches they know, oh no, uh, you know, bell cow churches in the UMC, 
how to use that as an example. So I think that's us thinking about, again, not changing what we're doing and not at all being manipulative, but just thinking, how do I really call attention to the connections between this, this dream, this vision, and what's important uh, to my supervisor? Yeah, and that's really just learning how to communicate clearly with somebody, you know, talking to them in their language and not, and not your language. Yeah. Um, so collaboration, and you really pushed us, you know, to, to think for collaboration in all kinds of contexts, um, both with other churches and um, uh, within our denomination and outside of our denomination. So one sort of quick question when is the timing for that, right? Is this something that, that is, is important for us to do right now to start, you know, immediately, or is this one of those things that needs planning? Yeah, um, yeah great question. Well, and I think, I think on the four steps that I put in chat, or the four ideas, I should say, um, I do think this needs to come from relationship. Um, you know, collaboration comes best from relationship. I heard a great phrase uh, related to fund development, um, and that is we can move at the speed of trust. So in any relationship, we can only go as fast as the trust that we have. And so, you know, the most collaborative thing you might do for the next six months is uh, agree to connect with another youth leader, you know, every two to four weeks on Zoom and periodically reach out to him or her and say, hey, I'm praying for you. And that might be the, the foundation that you need to lay before you get into some of the programmatic things um, that I'm talking about. 